Coming up on episode 28 of Omnivore, applying tech-enabled traceability in advance of FDA's 2026 deadline, and overcoming gender barriers in the science of food. This is Omnivore from the editors of Food Technology Magazine and the Institute of Food Technologists. This episode of Omnivore is brought to you by ITI Tropicals, the leading supplier in North America of tropical and exotic fruit juice concentrates and purees. Visit ITITropicals.com to request a free sample today. Welcome to Omnivore from IFT and Food Technology, where we explore the intersection of business, science, and technology in the global food system. I'm Bill McDowell. In episode 24 of Omnivore, we heard from traceability experts about FDA's Final Food Traceability Rule, or FISMA 204. The rule assigns a January 2026 deadline for food producers to apply technology-enabled traceability record-keeping up and down the supply chain in order to facilitate faster identification and removal of potentially contaminated food from the market. In this follow-up segment, we dig a little deeper into what FISMA 204 means for incorporating those tech-enabled traceability systems. Our science and technology editor, Julie Larson Brisher, spoke with FDA's Adam Friedlander and IFT's Blake Harris about the benefits of data sharing when it comes to traceability and first steps in identifying the technologies that are the right fit for different companies. Hi, Adam and Blake. It's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast today to talk about food traceability. Thanks for having us back on, Julie. Yeah, Julie, always a pleasure. Well, let's start with you, Adam. Um, Last time on our FDA on the FTR special segment, you gave us a great summary of the final food traceability rule, or as people are calling it FISMA 204. In this episode, I'd like to dive a little deeper into the technology aspects of the rule. What, if any, are the tech requirements for complying with FISMA 204? Yeah, thanks for the question, Julie. In accordance with FISMA, the final rule does not prescribe specific technologies for the maintenance of records. The records could be kept as original paper or electronic records, or even true copies. These records must be legible and stored to prevent deterioration or loss. And if firms choose to use electronic records, they may include valid working electronic links to the information required to be maintained under the final rule. But I just want to just repeat very quickly that the final rule does not have any specific technology requirements. Um, in certain certain circumstances, when the public health is threatened, we may request that information about specific foods and date ranges be provided to us in an electronic sortable spreadsheet, along with other information needed to understand the information within that spreadsheet. And we believe that firms that maintain their records on paper will be able to create such a spreadsheet using the information contained within their paper records under those limited circumstances. And moreover, the rule does not prescribe a specific technology for creating this sortable spreadsheet. 
But it's important to mention that several industry groups have put out their own guidance documents on how they can implement industry standards to comply with this rule and provide in-depth detail about how to work with their supply chain partners to harmonize the data capture, the data storage, and data sharing approaches. And software providers are partnering with their food industry customers to help them build solutions toward compliance. And FDA certainly supports that level of engagement, knowledge sharing, and collaboration within the food industry. How does FDA see tech playing a role with companies who are implementing FISMA? That's a great question, Julie. We believe that digital traceability can produce long-lasting benefits that create a safer, more efficient, and more insightful food system. Along with the public health benefits of implementing enhanced traceability, there are heightened data management benefits food waste reduction benefits, business intelligence benefits, inventory management benefits, and more robust food recall management processes. I'm, I'm definitely interested to hear Blake thought, Blake's thoughts in a moment about how industry can leverage technology to implement the final rule requirements. But I do want to spend a moment, Julie, talking about how FDA is developing and implementing traceability technology internally. The FDA is currently developing an internal product tracing system, we call it the PTS, to receive and analyze industry's food traceability data and more effectively and rapidly trace food within the United States. The PTS, which is built on a suite of open source tools, will enhance existing outbreak response processes, especially those by the FDA Coordinated Outbreak Response and Evaluation Network, or core. An electronic sortable spreadsheet is required in certain situations, but because there are other situations where the electronic sortable spreadsheet is not required, FDA is preparing to receive traceability records in a variety of formats. Once the data are uploaded, the PTS will automatically process the information into a supply chain visibility data standard called EPCIS. And that stands for the Electronic Product Code Information Services, and it was developed by GS1. This data standard is intended to promote data interoperability within FDA's PTS. While it may be helpful for the industry to know that this openly accessible data standard is one option available for use by industry to promote interoperability across their supply chains, it is not a requirement to comply with the food traceability rule, and it is not a requirement to send FDA food traceability data in EPCIS format. After this data processing within our PTS, the data are available for use by authorized government users in an open source data visualization platform called Food Chain Lab, and that was developed by the German Federal Institute for Risk Assessment, BFR for short. This automated visualization functionality will assist FDA in identifying potentially contaminated foods or ingredients during a foodborne outbreak investigation. And finally, Julie, it's important to mention that the PTS will have very strict data security and network security protocols. Only permissioned government users can access the data within the PTS, and FDA will protect confidential information from disclosure in accordance with all applicable statutes and regulations, just as it does for confidential information on other FDA-regulated products. 
Well, now let's get you into the conversation, Blake. In general, what do you see as the benefits of tech-enabled data sharing? And it's not just tech-enabled, but interoperable technology, right? Meaning that these systems can speak to each other without the need for human intervention. And the benefits are so much fun to think about. Beyond the better, faster, more efficient recall response, supply chain visibility, food safety and quality metrics, regulatory compliance, claims on authenticity, sustainability, or legality of a product, then you can kind of start to think about what's next, right? What's the vision? And things like improved data accuracy through analytics, verification and validation by corroborating data between different data sets, different databases, and the use of AI to analyze large data sets for anomalies. This allows you to shift from random auditing to better risk-based auditing approaches. And supply chains talking together, as well as government agencies talking together, is a positive because it makes commerce not only flow much more smoothly, but it also increases the trustworthiness in the data and the safety of the products. But this all rests on the use of data standards, which FISMA 204 has really started the process there by defining the critical tracking events and the key data elements that are associated with with each of those events. But those can be expanded to other commodities, other parts of the supply chain, and also initiatives around things like sustainability, carbon tracking, whatever is really important to the industry. Uh, So those are the sorts of things that I get excited about when thinking about tech-enabled traceability. Well, Blake, for for companies who are thinking about investing in new technology, what what questions should they be asking themselves or potential technology providers? Yeah, that's a great question, too. And we tried to cover this in the report. Um, And it's important because many of the facilities that are looking into technology they don't have a tech implementer guru as part of their staff. So you're really stuck uh, reaching out to consultants or the tech companies themselves for guidance, which can be a great source of information, but it takes a long time for someone like a consultant to really understand how your business operates, which is critical to choosing the right solution. And at the end of the day, if you're getting your information from a technology company, They are trying to sell you a product. So having some sense of what questions to ask beyond what's the subscription fee is important. So understanding things like how much support you get to train your staff and what resources are available for them, you know, to troubleshoot a problem or as you have staff turnover to train new staff, it's extremely important. Other questions are, you know, what sort of hardware is needed? And if any of your existing equipment can work with the new system, does this technology work with your existing uh, ERM system or ERP system? Will there need to be custom integration? What happens down the line if you find a better solution? Can you migrate your data to a new solution easily? And you may even want to reach out to your key customers or suppliers to see what they use and understand how the options that you have Uh, can integrate with their systems. So at the end of the day, every facility has different needs, which is why spurring excitement around creating new technologies, creative solutions 
is important for stakeholders like the FDA to continue to pursue. Well, I've got a final question for both of you. Uh, This month, January, marks two years out from the rules compliance deadline. Now, from your different perspectives, what should companies be doing right now to meet the implementation date of January 2026? Uh, Let's start with you, Adam. Thanks, Julie. As I mentioned on the previous episode, which I highly encourage your listeners to to listen to if they haven't heard the first episode, the compliance date for this rule is January 20th, 2026, but FDA recently made the announcement that routine inspections will not begin until 2027 to give covered entities additional time to work together toward compliance. But we may do inspections on a four-cause basis, such as during an outbreak investigation um, once this January 2026 compliance date is reached. FDA has many helpful resources on the Food Traceability Rule landing page on FDA.gov, such as the rule itself, which includes the Federal Register preamble where we respond to comments received during the proposed rulemaking period. We have FAQs, supply chain examples, an exemptions tool, webinars, and a link to ask FDA subject matter experts questions about the rule, and that you can access that using our technical assistance network. All that information can be accessed from our food traceability rule landing page. I highly recommend taking time to become familiar with these resources because they will help you understand the nuances of this rule. And always feel free to reach out to FDA with any questions you may have. My advice to the listeners, Julie, and to the greater food technology audience is to get started now on this journey and work collaboratively, both internally and with your supply chain partners on capturing, storing, and sharing these data elements because the compliance date will approach faster than we think, but Our lifetime work is just getting started and will continue well beyond the compliance date. Thinking beyond compliance, we need to think genuinely about how the collective efforts among each of us who are leveraging all this data can improve our food system and ultimately help prevent or mitigate foodborne illnesses across our nation and world for generations to come. Thanks, Adam. And how about you, Blake? IFT's Global Food Traceability Center also has a ton of great resources related to FISMA 204 implementation for industry. And we also just recently launched at the end of last year, the Traceability Education Suite, which includes a course for implementers to develop a tailored traceability plan for their facility, uh, which we think is going to be very helpful for the industry, especially with related to implementing 204. Wow, it sounds like there's a lot of resources out there for companies to utilize. Uh, Thanks again, Adam and Blake, for sharing your expertise on the podcast today. And I look forward to talking with you again later this year for more advice and tips on complying and coming into uh, implementation mode on the final food traceability rule. Friedlander is policy analyst with the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Blake Harris is technical director of IFT's Global Food Traceability Center.
Visit ift.org gftc to download a copy of IFT's tech-enabled traceability insights report and access a variety of educational materials and tools mentioned in today's episode. And be sure to check out FDA's website at fda.gov to stay abreast of the latest information on FISMA 204. We'll be back with more Omnivore in a moment. But first, this word from our sponsor. Add tropical flair to your product line today. ITA Tropicals is the leading supplier of tropical and exotic fruit juice concentrates and purees in North America. With products like passion fruit, guava, acerola, coconut water, and more, the possibilities with ITI Tropicals are endless. To view the full line of fruit purees, juices, and juice concentrates, or to request a free sample, visit ITITropicals.com today. Welcome back to Omnivore. I'm Bill McDowell. Over the past five years, thousands of women working within the food community have shared their stories with Angela Dodd, founder of the professional network Females in Food. Often those stories have focused on barriers they faced in the marketplace, ranging from unequal pay to lack of parental leave benefits to career progression roadblocks. In this segment, Dodd shares her thoughts with Food Technologies' Mary Ellen Kuhn on what food industry leaders can do to advance salary and opportunity equity for women. Well, Angela, you founded an organization called Females in Food about four years ago. So could you take us back to the start of that? What made you want to create this organization? You know, this is an industry that... I, I am in love with. I, I was raised in it. I have a career in it. I've been working in it for the last 15 years. And, you know, as I continued through my career, I just started to hear more and more stories that were so similar of women across various industry sectors. And and some of these stories resonated with some of my own experiences as well. And as I sat back and just looked at the industry as a whole and thought, you know, what's being done to actively change or help get more women into senior leadership roles. You know, what really inspired me was the women around me, the women that um, came before me. And I just made the decision one day to put my own time, money and resources on the line to, to be a part of the solution. And I think that's something that, that carries forward in the intention of the community is, is what small things can we do to help other women rise? And it may not be starting a big organization like I've done, but each of us can do something small to help one another. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proud about with the Females in Food community is is really the culture inside the community of people showing up and truly willing to help one another. And beyond you know, other things that need to change in the industry. I I think having that underlying intention, both from women and men in the industry can go such a long ways. Well, it's definitely such an ambitious undertaking. So you talked about small changes and that was actually one of my questions. I'm wondering if there are small changes an organization could make to improve the scenario for women in the workplace from an individual level or manager level or team level, 
it's really about looking at the culture of your team, you know, small changes that, um, that can make a big impact could be anything from just visibility recognition, you know, making sure a woman's voice isn't being talked over in a meeting. If you do experience that to, to pause and say, I really, I really loved Mary Ellen's idea, for example, and repeat that and make sure people hear it. You know, the, the recognition and acknowledgement, but having the flexibility that people crave nowadays to not be micromanaged and to allow that flexibility in life and work. Other things that are free, right? That companies can do. Because a lot of times I get pushback from individuals saying, you know, we're not a Fortune 500 company. We can't have, you know, six months of paid parental leave or 12 months. And um, I say, what what women are you sponsoring in your company, right? Sponsorship programs are free. And so I challenge leaders in the industry to say, what woman are you sponsoring? We know that women are over-mentored and under-sponsored. And being that champion, that sponsor for a woman and giving her visibility where she may have not otherwise been seen or recognized behind closed doors is, is something small that any leader can do that could really move the needle for, for women in the food and beverage industry. Well, I'm curious about that mentoring and sponsoring and, and your distinction between women being over-mentored and under-sponsored. Could you just elaborate a little bit on the distinction between those two things and what sponsorship might entail? Sponsorship is is where an established leader uses their influence to champion women with other key players and decision makers and actively creates opportunities for them that they would not have otherwise had, right? So really that senior leader behind closed doors, sponsoring women in their organization or in the industry and and giving them a voice where, where they may not have otherwise had it. I would like to go back to a a bigger picture question, because we talked a little maybe about some of the small things that could happen, but I didn't want to skip asking you about thinking bigger. So what are some of the big picture things that need to change to help support gender equity and parity in the workplace? I'll start with equal pay. And we know women get paid 80% of that of men yet in, in the industry. And so fair and equitable pay for the same job, you know, Uh, Work that IFT is doing to bring visibility to this, I think is huge, but also some of the new state laws that provide some of the pay transparency, I think are also going to start moving the needle, but, you know, providing women with the tools and resources to advocate and then making sure that companies are having fair and equitable policies in place to, to check in on themselves to say, are we, are we making sure we have fair and equitable pay across genders. I think that's one big picture thing that needs improved and changed. Other areas, paid parental leave. I know the majority of the industry is still, the real stat is most nationally, women are back to work 10 days after giving birth, which as a mother, I I can't even imagine. But I know that's the national statistic. The majority of the industry I know is still uses short-term disability as as a form of paid parental leave. And it's one area that I am extremely passionate about advocating for in an area that I hear 
over and over from women that needs improved across our industry is better paid parental leave so that women aren't coming back to the work completely burned out and and being pulled in so many directions so shortly after giving birth. Uh, you know, other areas that I mentioned that are more that can be done quite quickly, right, is investing in professional development, look at creating ERG groups within your companies, supporting supporting the marginalized um, communities and, and employees to make sure that they have the support and resources to succeed, but also having a clear map for career progression. I think this is something that so often goes overlooked and we get busy every day in, comp- in our personal lives and in companies and checking back in to say, are we mapping against those goals that we set out? Those are a lot of great examples. Thank you for those. I wanted to ask, based on your experience, I mean, you've spoken to hundreds of women about their jobs and their goals and their work environments. Parental leave is obviously very important. Are there other things that are top priorities that women are seeking from their employers? I'll go back to, you know, feedback, flexibility, visibility, and acknowledgement. In all the conversations I've had with, as you said, hundreds, really thousands of women, a lot of the root causes um, that really drive frustration or burnout or bitterness with women is it comes down to culture, right? They, they want that inclusive culture. They want to be seen, heard, acknowledged and and really have a healthy team culture in which you know you can feel like you're showing up to be yourself you're being heard you're being appreciated it's simple things of human nature that can go a really long way before we wrap up i'm wondering if i could just take you back to the whole idea of the gender gap in salaries because that's something i have learned about working on ifts compensation surveys and I recently learned interviewing an expert, I think the last time I was working on this article, was that the fact that women are earning just about 80% of what men earn has really been stalled for about a decade. It had improved uh, over the decades prior to that, but now it's been stalled. So how optimistic are you that women will achieve salary and opportunity parity with men? For me, I will always be optimistic that something more can be done to to advocate for parity and opportunity and in pay, you know, within females and food, a a big piece of, this is something that I was passionate from the very beginning about. And even before the state law started passing on pay transparency, I personally, you know, have told every woman that comes into our community, let's talk about money, right? Like this is not a taboo subject. Anybody that wants feedback or counseling advice on and what they're currently making and what their market worth is, let's have that conversation. Let's bring it to the table. And it's nothing to be ashamed about or embarrassed about, but hopefully you can get the real data points that you need to go advocate for yourself and ask for what you're worth or be given that feedback that maybe it's time, you know, you need to seek elsewhere to find, um, find that opportunity that is going to pay you your worth. Well, thank you. That it, money matters and money, and, money definitely matters. <laughs> and knowledge is power, I think. Absolutely. And this is our livelihood, right? And we have to take responsibility 
for it. I, you know, I say very rarely does somebody show up on your doorstep saying, I want to pay you more. And so I, I do feel passionate about women and men advocating for their worth. Angela Dodd is the founder of Females in Food, an organization working to advance opportunities for women in the food community. You can read her dialogue column, and IFT members can join an online discussion on closing the gender gap in the December-January issue of Food Technology. Thank you to ITI Tropicals, the sponsor of this episode of Omnivore. ITI Tropicals is the leading supplier of tropical and exotic fruit juice concentrates and purees in North America. Visit ITITropicals.com to view their full line of fruit purees, juices, and juice concentrates, or to request a free sample today. That's ITITropicals.com. And that wraps up this episode of Omnivore. Thanks again to all our guests and my colleagues at Food Technology. Omnivore is produced and distributed by the Institute of Food Technologists. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about Food Technology Magazine or how to join the conversation by becoming an IFT member, visit ift.org membership. For more in-depth discussion about innovation in the science of food, check out IFT's other podcast, SciDish, on the news and publications page of ift.org. If you have comments or suggestions for future shows, just send us an email. The address is editors at ift.org. For the entire team at Food Technology and IFT, I'm Bill McDowell. Thanks for listening, and join us again for our next episode. This is Omnivore.